Listener Production. Welcome back. You are listening to episode six of the Howie Games Artist Series Part B featuring rock god Kirk Pengilly. Don't forget to check out the epic new e-store at www.inexcess.com for all sorts of ripping gear. Alrighty, hit it. You've taken me from the, the back blocks of WA to Australia to starting in America and fronting Queen. When does it go to that next stratosphere when you become, and this is really what I want to talk to you about, about the lessons learned, et cetera, but when does In Excess become a global phenomenon where you are playing big crowds, big concerts, big names, big albums, yeah. Big everything, I guess. Excess. Yeah, in excess. Yeah. Um, well, the Queen thing was in '86, so you know that was that was three years later. And as I said, we we worked North America for you know for probably 18 months. I mean, one of the tours went for nine months through North America. Nine uh, months. Not, and you're you're playing five six times a week. Uh, yeah, yeah, five or six nights a week. Um, and uh, so, gee, you're honing your craft, aren't you? You're really honing your craft, like yeah, you talked yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, it's funny. You know, I, I think of uh, you know musicals, stage productions, where where you know they've got to go out there and they've literally got to do it verbatim every night. How Groundhog Day that must be. Whereas uh, you know, it's different. With I mean, we we would have a set list and we would stick to that if it worked. You know, if it built the crowd up at a certain point and brought them down and built them up at the end. You know, um, we would stick with that for a while. But there were certainly parts within within the set list where uh, there was an element of of jamming and, and having a bit of fun and all that sort of stuff. So the show was never never the same. We weren't a, the sort of band that that rehearsed to be here and that part of that song and over there and that song and, and do this and that, you know, it was all quite spontaneous. Um, so, and I think that's what kept it, stopped it being boring, as I'm saying, like with a, yeah. with a musical production, you know, a theatre production where it's verbatim every night. But um, so uh, now I've kind so of what, lost what, my train what of exploded it? What took oh, it? What, what well, album? What what song? What took you to the to the world domination that you became? Look, it was really gradual, you know. We were, we were becoming really popular in North America and then we thought, okay, we've got a bite in Europe, you know, a, a record deal, let's go and start working there. So, again, you know, we went to Europe and we were sort of starting at the bottom again. Um, you know, Australia, well, we were pretty big, uh, but, but still, you know, we still hadn't had successive number ones even in Australia. Um, so we were building these different markets and also South America. We were, you know, the first band to, uh, international band to ever play in Argentina in Buenos Aires in 1984 or five, I think it was. Um, Mexico City, we were the first international band to play there uh, since the Doors back in the 60s. It's great to be in Mexico. It's great. Now, there's a, there's a part of your book where some chap gets kidnapped, Kirk. Oh, yes, one of our roadies, yeah, so yeah. What happened to your uh, road? Because, yeah, as you said, you, uh, Mexico was a different place then. So you blokes rolled in yeah, there. What yeah. happened? You got a roadie well, that, well, kidnapped. That, no, it was in Rio. Um, we were headlining a Rock and Rio Festival, um, which is a massive um, festival in Rio. goes for three days with all sorts of bands, and we were headlining one of the nights there. 150,000 people um, turn up 
you know, each day. 150,000 people. <laughs> Heavens it's, above, it's, man. It's mental, yeah. It's, there's no, wasn't any COVID back then, you know. No. No social distancing. But, um, uh, but uh, look, the, the, in this incident in Rio, one of the crew guys who, who just happened to be an African-American guy, he was Gary's, um, Gary, the bass player's crew guy that sets all Gary's stuff up and looks after him on stage, um, he was outside of the hotel, I think, and uh, some cops came and just picked him up and, <laughs> and said, uh, we're not letting you go. Um, have you got drugs on you and blah, 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 and just, you know, roughed him up a little bit and then drove him around while they proceeded to call into households, shops and extort money, you know. It's just, it's just so out there. And eventually, On their route. Yeah, just, well, that was their route to go and just, you know, get cash from And he, he's in the back of the car, is he? And he's in the back of the police car with it locked, you know. I don't know if he was handcuffed or not. Anyway, look, eventually they, they let him go and, and everything was okay, but he went for a very interesting ride with, uh, you know, the Brazilian police. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Kirk, I sidetracked you. You were talking about a pivotal point for worldwide domination. Probably, it, you know, it is the Kick album, which was our uh, one, two, three, four, a sixth, a sixth album, yep. um, the Kick album. That was the one that that finally everything synced, you know, worldwide um, as far as chart success and and uh, and then you know selling out arenas. Um, all over the world sort of thing. Tell me about the album, Kick, right? Yep. Comes out next Monday. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to hear all about it. Give us a big scoop. Oh. Big scoop. It's really good. Yes. Yeah, it's it's amazing and you'll love it. We're really, really happy. Really happy. Yeah, we are. I mean, it's the best fun we've had in the studio since a few years ago with Shabu Shabar or something like that. Mm. It's great attitude, good fun. That, that was the, the, the turning point and then I think that the album after that, uh, the X album kind of cemented it, but not in all places. Uh, in fact, the album After Kick was massive in South America, um, and that so that that's where South America really. I think we were at our peak around that time. Whereas in North America, it was probably around the Kick album, uh, and in Europe, it was uh, well Kick Kick flopped initially in the UK. Um, we released Need You Tonight uh, as the first single in the UK and, you know, it, we couldn't get arrested. This is our brand new single and video, Need You Tonight. Talk about Kick in your book where it describes the fact that the American record label said we're not even going to release this Well, album. there's that story as well, yeah. when I mean, we had a, an extraordinary kind of setup which which Chris Murphy instigated where we, not not initially but certainly by the time Kick came around, where um, we never had never had the record companies come and interfere with us when we were recording. No one was allowed in to our recordings, you know, um, invite-only kind of thing. And whereas a lot of other acts, there'd be a guy from the record company, an A&R guy that would be, you know, participating in... I 
I guess, choosing the songs for the album and, and all that sort of stuff, whereas it was always just the six of us and our producer for the record. Uh-huh. Um, so, but... We Chris managed to uh, secure in some of the territories and, and um, what's called a licensing deal. So that meant that we would, you know, we'd get an advance and we'd make a record, and then we would say, "Here it is, um, you know, go and make it, go and make it big for us." So Chris went over to uh, to the head of, head, you know, New York head of Atlantic to play him the Kick album when we'd finished it. Um, and, you know, he was really excited. We were all really excited about the album because it was very, very different. We had so much fun making it and, you know, we'd, off, we'd just had a top five hit in North America from the album before that. So we felt... From, which song? Which song was that? What You Need. What You Need. Sorry, um, go on, mate. Yeah. So we, we felt there was momentum. We felt that, you know, this, this, this was going to be, this was going to go and it was going to go off um, because it was sort of all poised. Every, all the stars were in alignment you know, and he he goes and sits down with the the head guy of Atlantic and and they have a listen and the the Atlantic guy's kind of you know nodding a little bit and after each song and and then uh, when, when the album had finished he just basically said you know to Chris look I'll I'll give you a million bucks to go and make another record I just I, I don't under, I don't get it I don't even hear a hit single one yeah and so Chris buried that Chris he didn't buried tell that. You. No, we we never knew until many years later, and uh, and so he then proceeded to go and try and find uh, people within Atlantic that that and play it play it to them, you know, like people in sort of the the different departments, um, you know, they have, they have got people that just that, that do radio and, and take out the singles to the radio and try and push them, and they have people that do the media, and you know what I mean? It's all it's yes. all sort of uh, segregated and different departments and all that. So he just went around. And started to try and find a team of people that um, that got it, that that, that loved the record, um, so he could sort of behind the guy, the, the head guy of Atlantic's back, um, get it get it up and running, and and he did, he did it. So um, it, you know, it, it sort of broke out through college radio and and uh, you know college towns again, and and then just kind of went global through North America and uh, but the but Europe was a different matter so um, uh, it, it kind of we re-released it about a year later after we'd just been you know touring just mental in, in North America and Australia. We get letters. Rich Appel of CBS TV in New York notes that In Excess is the first non-American group to land six consecutive top ten hits in the Hot 100 since Culture Club in 1983-84. Wow. Really? Yeah. Six consecutive top ten hits. Hey! It was huge, you know, the kick album. So, um, and they re-released Need Your Night almost a year later in the UK and then it became a big hit and, and it all caught up, you know. So, we get to... Wembley, I think it's 1991. Yep. Now, I, I was talking about this with someone yesterday. It, it, the whole thing is filmed. Um, I watched it on iTunes. So now, the, my first question for you, so I paid my $21 on iTunes. Does some of that still go back to Kurt Pengelly or not? Uh, yeah, it should. Okay, good. Yeah, good. It, well, it should. I, um, I, hope you, I hope you see my receipt come through sometime yeah, yeah, in the next couple get, of days. I'll probably get 10 cents or something, right, you know. Well, uh, you, uh, use that wisely. <laughs> so I was talking to someone yesterday, mate, that 
the song, your first song, the first words are Live Baby Live, but the 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 movie, is it called Live Baby Live, Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live? All of the above. All of the above. Um, so I can call it whatever <laughs> no. I want. Uh, look, I think, I think really because the, the lyric is Live Baby Live, but I think uh, uh, where we were going with that was probably Live Baby Live. Okay, good, um, right. Because it, because it was a live concert. And and we've, we funded that whole thing. Yeah. You know, Hutch asks Chris, you know, how much, how much are we making tonight? And Chris goes, well, nothing. Um, because basically all the proceeds of that concert went into the, the film production. You know, we had helicopters and uh, it was ridiculous. And it was all recorded on, on film, you know, not, it wasn't, digital back then. There was video, but not not uh, digital like we have today. So it was all, you know, um, filmed on celluloid. Um, and uh, um, so, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. And, you know, thank heavens we played pretty good that night. So 1991 at Wembley, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you some sort of short, sharp questions and get your responses and your memories because this to me is the true essence, Kirk, of what it is to be a rock star, which, which, which fascinates me. Before you walk out on stage, people should also spend their money on iTunes and buy it and have a watch of it because it is, it is absolute rock stardom at its best. So there's, there's 75,000 people out on stage waiting for you. Take me to an hour before, half an hour before. Athletes at this stage are preparing. I'd imagine your preparation is a little bit different to what your athlete's doing, but what happens before you go out and what type of energy is required to build yourself up to go out in front of 75,000 people and give them what they want? Mm. Look, I think I think firstly you just have to keep telling yourself it's just another show. Huh. Um, you know what I mean? Don't get all caught up in. And as I said, we were doing you know stadiums um, all, all around at that point. So in essence, it was just another show. What always used to make me nervous is if we were, if we were recording the show, let alone filming it. You know, yep. um, because then it's there forever, and if you make a mistake, and you know, the wrath of the other guys. You know, like you, you stuffed right. that up. You know, right. so so um, you know, because we were very hard on ourselves because we it meant a lot to us. You know, but um, I actually that on that particular show, I went out early um, because I wanted to see some of the other bands and just kind. Kind of get a feel and get a vibe. Um, I, you know, for me, I always like to get on, on the early side to a gig to, to sort of just be there and and make. I, I always had to go and check my saxophones and, and put the reeds on properly and make sure because because I'm a multi instrumentalist. Um, you know, make sure everything's set exactly how I need it to be yep. um, for the show. And I could never really trust uh, my crew guy just to 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 do it exactly how I wanted to do it, you know. So um, I, I always heard on wanting to get to gigs early, whereas others in the band, like Tim, you know, he literally just wants to get out of the limo and walk on stage, you know. Um, <laughs> but but we would generally generally get there an hour before, but that day I, I went out quite early, like in the afternoon, um, and just sort of hung out and then the other guys arrived. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's really just... Uh, 
hanging out backstage, just gradually getting dressed, um, you know, having having some champagne, um, uh, and uh, and just kind of hanging out. And I, there's always a lot of humour. We're all, always, um, you know, just. I don't know, making jokes or playing out on each other and yeah. uh, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was very, it was, I mean, for me, um, definitely a, a few stiff drinks um, and, uh, and you know, just getting ready and, and, and knowing that I'm ready to go on. So, you know, I've, I've done everything I can do to prepare for that show um, and then just sort of relaxing until we go on. So that, that for me was kind of it. Is there a team chat? Does does anyone do you boys no. grab each other in a group or any of that, or you just sort of wander out? Oh, there? look, when we go out, we all go out together. You know, we we'll walk as a group, and and uh, yeah, sometimes we we you know do high fives, and <laughs> I don't know, you know what I mean? Like okay. there, there, there's a little bit of that, and 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 but you know, we just it, I think. At, at that point, um, you know, we'd probably done well over a thousand shows, may, or maybe more than that. Um, it was, it's, it's sort of, it's routine. It's just yeah. like, you know, here, here we go again. Let's, let's kill it tonight, and uh, and you know, let it be the best show that we've ever done. So, so when you walk out there, Kirk, and you have played over a thousand shows, you started off playing in WA, you've played in front of 24 people in San Diego. You walk out at Wembley Stadium and the opening shots before Michael starts with New Sensation and you guys fire up and that first line of Live Baby Live, there's just shots of it's like a pulsating crowd of 75,000 people that are moving as one. It's almost... It's like an a, organism. It is. It's an <laughs> organism. I was going to use the word amoeba. So you yeah, right. walk out on stage. Yeah. What, what is that like? That's what I really oh. want to ask you. What is that like being a rock star with 75,000 yeah. people at your feet? Yeah, look, it's unlike anything you can imagine. It's unlike, uh, you know, uh, any drug you could take or, or any drink you could drink that, you know, makes you feel euphoric um yeah it's it's very powerful you know but but at the same time you know you you can't you sort of can't lose concentration with what what's going on i mean you observe it and you go oh wow you know the whole crowd's going like this yes. as one yes. um that sort of thing um uh, it's it's mind-blowing but 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 then again, I, you know, for me, as boring as it sounds, I, you know, I'm concentrating on what's coming up next. I, hang on, I've got to pick my sacks up for this solo here and, and you know what I mean? I'm planning ahead and thinking ahead of what my next move is and what I've got to do and I'm watching what the other guys are doing and I'm okay, going to run across here but I've got to watch out for Michael, you know. Uh, you know what I mean? It's sort of uh, you, you're sort of so in the moment and so engaged with it. It's, it's probably more afterwards that you go like, wow, that was, you know, that was pretty, pretty incredible. Um, and also, you know, a lot of the time you've got lights shining right in your eyes and the lights aren't on the audience. So okay. a lot of the time you're not really seeing what the audience are doing. Um, can you, you can hear see... them at all? Can you hear them above what yeah. you're doing when they yeah, roar yeah, or pretty... when they sing with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. After a song, you know, the, the huh. applause or whatever is, is, is deafening, you know. It, it wasn't and applause. It... it was 
It was devotion is what it was. Yeah. That's the best way I can describe it from watching it. Yeah, yeah. It was quite incredible and it was it was a big moment for us in a way too, being London, you know, London, England. Yes. Um, and we'd had so much shit from the media and uh, and all that um, that we sort of came in, sold out Wembley Stadium and it was like, you know, to, to the media, yeah, totally. Um, so you know that that was really cool, and 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 you know that particular night. I mean, it, it's obviously the most memorable because we can watch it, but um, uh, it certainly you know there's other gigs that were equally um, uh, equally as 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 crazy. You know, some of the South American ones. You know, when we got really big in South America, um, they were nuts because uh, we, we, you know, one of the first international bands to sort of start touring in South America back in the, the early to mid-'80s, um, in some ways part of the way, uh, to all over um, South America, not just, you know, Mexico City or, or Brazil. I mean, Peru and Chile and Colombia and El Salvador and all these places. Hi, I'm Kurt Loder with MTV News, just having a little cafezinho break here in the uh, San Cojado district of Rio de Janeiro. Down below us, the beach is spread out, the sun is out. It's a beautiful day. Also down below us are many, many rock and pop stars running through the streets of Rio, checking the town out. We've been following a lot of them this week. One of them we ran to recently was in excess, and here's what they had to say for themselves. Rio is a particularly amazing place. The nightclubs don't even start sort of happening till like one. But um, it also, it's en route from Miami to Buenos Aires which is our next port of call. Yeah, we're doing a tour of Latin America. This is a great way to start it. We just came from Mexico City, which was actually completely and totally wild. And we had no idea. We left Australia to go to Mexico City. And we sort of thought, oh, yeah, a gig in Mexico City. It turned out to be like three gigs in a 20,000-seater. And we turned out to be the first band to play in Mexico City since The Doors, apparently. And they were so starved of, of sort of an international sound, an international band. Um, it was like being, you know, the, the footage you see of the Beatles, you know, when they first kind was of got, got huge. It was like, it was mental. It was like that. I mean, we had to have security everywhere all the time and uh, and in some of those South American countries, you know, security meant they had, you know, an AK <laughs> freaking 40 and, you know, and there'd be, there'd be 30 of them around you guarding you and, Nuts, you know, but um, the South American audiences were just amazing, and so yeah. um, there's there's some attractive um, ladies in mm. in you know South American countries, and and honestly, it just uh, they just like to take their tops off, and right. um, and they be on you know on the shoulders of, of of I guess their boyfriend or whatever you know, and the tops come off, and dad, it's just like oh, I can't look at this anymore. And you're trying to play your next chord. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Can you put it back on? You're distracting me. <laughs> you know, it was pretty funny. Um, but they, they uh, a lot of the South American audiences too, you know, because they don't, their English is their second language, um, they tended to uh, pick up on riffs in songs. Like, for example, in, uh, in there's a song called Devil Inside and, yep. and it's got a really prominent riff in it. It's dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, and the audience would pick up on that, and they would sing it so loud, um, like the whole crowd would sing that riff when it came in. You know that we couldn't hear ourselves playing it on stage. You know, wow, it was it was nuts. Yeah. So uh, I love this conversation. I told you I was going to have a million questions (laughs) and and, and spoil the rest of your day and run you out of time. (laughs) Uh, Talk to me about what you. 
what you're going to wear. So you roll out back to Wembley and you've got the full red suit on and, what, is it 25 years later, it's it's beyond cool. And <laughs> So is that... Do you decide yourself and say, right, I'm going to go and buy a red suit from Savile Row or does someone advise you? Like, how does that work? No, we, we uh, look, it, it depended. Um, later on we did have, uh, you know, we had a, a particular woman that that uh, we used for wardrobe uh, and a series of different people, but there was one American girl that we used a lot um, and especially for videos and for, you know, album cover shoots and, and things like that and, and she'd just bring in, you know, racks of stuff and and sort of go, oh, this would look good on you and we'd go through and pick out our own stuff and she'd have a few things specifically for each of us and especially Michael um, and then we'd just go through and pick stuff out and and then that would go in a road case and go on the road and, you know, but along the way, um, you know, go go shopping. And, well, uh, so where'd the and, red and suit come from? That's what happened. With, well, I bought that in, in Paris It's a, from uh, a, a big designer back then called Comme de Garçon. Uh, and it cost me, <laughs> it cost me something like two and a half grand for wow. it, you know. And that was back then in, you know, ni- 1991 or whatever. And I bought, I bought it pr- probably maybe two or three weeks before Wembley specifically to wear, you know, at the Wembley show. So, um, and I've still got it. I've still got the suit. Um, Packed away in my lockup somewhere with moth holes in it, but um. <laughs> with the, when you're in that suit, and I was, I was, I was calling the footy on the weekend with a guy. I know, I know you're not a big AFL man, but a fellow by the name of Jonathan Brown. I, I work yeah. with him, so he's a, a three-time premiership player in Brisbane. He, he's a superstar of the AFL. Yeah. And I was explaining him to the concept, and I was really excited. I was talking about you, and he said, "Oh, have you seen the <laughs> Wembley concert?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he said, "Oh, me and my mates, so we'd have it set up in the um, TV with all the speakers." <laughs> around and the whole area could have it and when Kirk would play his saxophone solos in the red jacket they would get their cans of beer and pretend they were playing on the saxophone <laughs> and he said you got to you got to tell him about this and this is what it comes oh, wow. back to you guys being intrinsically linked to Australian mm. uh Australian life but when you're in that situation with um with some of those songs where you're playing the solo, like the Never Tear is a part solo, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Are you are you 100% focused on what you're doing? Are you aware of what's around you or not? Yeah, yeah, you're aware of what's around you. But um, but certainly it's, uh, you know, that was one song where I would choose a position to, to be lit up for the solo. Yes, and, the, you know, the big like, spotlight's on you, yeah, Kirk. Yeah. It's all about yeah. you. <laughs> And later, later on, when when we got uh, started using you know the in ear monitor things, yeah, um, I used to uh, find a spot each night out in the stadium, you know, like sort of where no one would expect, and and the lighting guy would would plan it, and the lighting guy. Key up all uh, the spotlight guys to you know to spin it round to where <laughs> I am sort of thing. So you know um, a bit of theatrics with it, you know. But but yeah, you definitely because um, often I was poised on a precarious place in yeah, that yeah, one yeah. in Never Terrace yeah. Apart, like on top of the PA or whatever on a small, you know, and I'd be just 
frozen because I didn't want to fall off, you know. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, you know, it's, it's just a normal person and you just, you know, just playing this thing and having the same old thoughts like, oh, that dinner wasn't so good, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you, you kind of, it's, it's random just how it, how it all works, even though you're in the moment and all that. But, but you know, um, you, I think probably, you know, hope I don't stuff it up kind of thing or whatever else, but when it's your big moment. And so what, So now we've ascertained how big you are. You, you're the biggest rock band in the world. For a little while we were. For, yeah, for well, bit. yeah, for, for, for years. Yes, you know, <laughs> don't be too modest here. How do you retain touch with reality when everything is at your fingertips, whether it be substances, whether it be drinks, every bloke wants to be you, every girl, the old expression wants to be with you, wherever you go, you are fated, everyone tells you how wonderful you are. Like you're still a group of blokes that have grown up together, but how do you retain touch with reality? Can you retain touch with reality? And mm. what happens if you if you lose touch with reality? Yeah, oh, look, there are definitely moments where, where yes, you know, reality was lost. Um, and I think, but one of the things I think was good about, you know, this band was that we, you know, f- for the most part and for as long as we could, um, uh, kept everyone, you know, everyone's feet firmly planted on the ground. And um, and if, if, you know, one of us was starting to go a little bit kind of... Uh, um, Rockstar. Yeah, a bit rock star. Um, then it was a matter of just try, trying to sort of bring them back down again to earth, you know. I think I think probably um, uh, with time, uh, you know, later on um, with some of the guys living overseas and all that sort of stuff, it was a lot harder to, to kind of keep that reality uh, in check, um, especially, say, with Michael. But, um, look... Um, it's a multi-layered thing. I mean, it, it is it is really difficult when you've got people coming up and just constantly telling you how amazing you are and how great you are. I, I think I just used to water off a duck's back for the most part, um, you know. And 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 part of that was a part of that's probably just that. Well, you know, you to me, you, you might have thought that was great, but I, you know, there was room for improvement in there. I could have done that better, and uh, I didn't think it was that great tonight, or whatever. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say that to them, but but you know what I mean. You, you, yeah. I think I think that that sort of lust to be the best uh, you can um, was partial in in keeping me grounded, but also. For me, choosing to remain in Australia and live in Australia and come home to my friends and they've got no idea what's going on out there, you know. So um, it's just playing old Kirk's back from his trip, you know. Um, that was really good and grounding. And, and partners, you know, your, your, your wife or your partner keeping you grounded and all that sort of stuff too. Let's get back to Kirk. You talked about um, South America and being surrounded by, you know, AK-47 wielding police and army. Um, Without being silly, um, and I'm putting you on the spot here, try and give me a story or or, or something that happened to just explain to me as well as the audience about how big it got, about how fated you were. Um, It was a great description what you've described in South America. I'm putting you on the spot a bit here. do, Do you know what I'm trying to get at? It, it was everything, you know, like police escorts to, to, you know, to the stadiums and all that sort of stuff. Mental, again, especially in South America because they would just 
they would drive down the wrong side of the road and <laughs> be honking their horn, sirens on, and people would just have to pull over and, you know. To um, get you to the concert. Yeah. Wow. Well, because when you think about, you know, for example, the, the Rock and Rare one I said was, you know, 150,000, you've got 150,000 people trying to get to that concert, you know, at the same time. So for you to get in there, like, do we get a helicopter or, um, and which we did a few times, you know, I had a helicopter in and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, it's just, um, uh, I, I think, um, we just always tried to keep it as real as we could and, uh, and, and try not to have, you know, overdo it with security people and all that sort of stuff. But, I, you know, I, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your no, question. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. But, no, I, I, but, I, but it's, you know, I mean, we had our own jet for a while and, you know, had an in excess on the tail of it. And, uh, yeah, you and had your band sort of, name painted, painted on the plane. Yeah, yeah. Of course you did. Um, of course you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we'd, we'd fly into the, to the private airports um, and just, step out of the plane into the limo and drive off the tarmac and uh, and go into countries and we would be just escorted through ahead of all the queues for customs and stuff like that. We'd just be taken straight through and uh, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty hard to, you know, come back home and, and catch an ANSET ANA flight, you know, to Melbourne and well, well, line this, up. And, this is know. my next question, uh, Kurt. Yeah. Does... does can the rest of your life match up to your work life? Like how, how do you, mm. how do you, I asked you how you retained a hold on reality, but like something is so vibrant, so mm. colourful. It's let, Let's talk brightest of bright pink. How can the rest of your life compare? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you have that. It hasn't gone, you know. Uh, it may not be happening now. And, I mean, that's that was kind of, that was the difficulty too, like at that sort of peaky three or four or five, six years, um, you know, we'd tour for three, four months or, you know, whatever it was, uh, and then come home for a break for a couple of weeks and, you know, you'd sit in your lounge room and wonder why no one's applauding, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well it's sat, really Kirk. Hard. Well sat, Kirk. <laughs> it's really hard, Howie. <laughs> but you know, well opened of the fridge. I love the way you yeah, opened yeah, that yeah, beer, yeah. Kirk. Yeah, yeah. Where, where's the champagne? Why has anyone brought me any? So I, you know, I, I think those sorts of reality checks um, were really important um, huh. in in being able to sort of deal with it later on uh, when it all sort of slowed down. And, and I think uh, again too, you know, what goes up must come down. So um, during that really peak crazy period, uh, you know, it, it, the, the popularity started to dwindle, other acts come along and it's just a natural sort of progression mm. to a certain extent. Um, and you go with that. So, you know, you suddenly find, oh, we're not getting escorted through customs anymore. Oh, there's no police escorted, <laughs> you know. Uh, oh, there's only one bottle of beer backstage. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the Maui? <laughs> no, yeah, at least it was a long neck. <laughs> But, but you know, so I mean, you kind of, you kind of, I kind of phased down and slowed down a bit, you know. Um, but then, of course, later on, uh, of course, the book kind of really only covers, um, you know, life with with Michael with Hutch. Yeah. Um, we, you know, there's another twenty years to our story after that, and we went, you know, we went to America and and created a, a TV show to find a, yes. a new singer around the world. From Los Angeles, the global search that rocks the world. Star World presents Rockstar in Excess. 
I'm not getting any younger. I think this is possibly the best chance I'll ever get of becoming a rock star. Rockstar means to me everything that I've ever wanted to be. Since I was four years old, I'm in the mirror playing air guitar. It's been a lifelong dream to be a rock star. That was crazy, you know, and, and that whole experience and the touring of that and making a record and that was all crazy again. So, you know, you just don't, don't know what's around the corner, but um, I think certainly, you know, at the ripe old age of, well, I'm 63 on Sunday, um, I, you know, I, I don't miss any of any of it i did it so um and i i actually really enjoy sort of the simple life now because i never had it you know just just doing the normal stuff and uh being a normal human being and you know etc etc so the passing of michael you know the the world i was thinking about this and the best way to ask you about this i i don't want to ask you anything that would upset you kirk no um nothing would okay um, the world lost a, a rock star. People lost their favourite musician. You guys lost one of your really close mates, mm. I guess, mm. is, is, is the way I thought about it. The international music industry is in shock with the death of rock star Michael Hutchins. The body of the in excess lead singer was discovered in a Sydney hotel room late this morning. Police won't confirm the cause of death. Can you tell me um, when you found out and, and what, what effect it had on you losing one of your mates? Forget all the the rock star and the band and everything. It's it's one of your mates that you've spent some really 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 great times with. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, obviously, you know, an integral part of our our business and of of, of the band and you know uh, all that sort of thing. The front man of the band. That's always. Uh, you know, the hardest person to try and, um, well, not replace, but, um, you know, the, the hardest person to fill that, that spot. Yes. Um, you know, without belittling all the musicians, including myself in the band, um, you know, the front man is the front man. So, um, but we were rehearsing here in Sydney. Um, we'd just finished uh, a world tour and we were finishing up in Australia. We hadn't played here for, I think, maybe three or four years, might have even been more. Um, and uh, so we rehearsed, We used to rehearse at the, the ABC studios in Gore Hill here in Sydney, which was their TV production studios. I've got big, big rooms, big sound stages that, you know, we used to rent from them and, and rehearse in there and rehearsals were going well. Everyone was in, you know, really good spirits. Michael was actually in a really good place. He'd been been having a really tough time um, with the media, media in the UK, with his relationship with, with Paula Yates, who was Sir Bob Geldof's wife that he allegedly stole from uh, from him. It was kind of the other way around, actually. <laughs> oh, but um, okay. but anyway, like she left, you know, he didn't yes. steal her. She, she gotcha. chased Michael. She chased up Michael. Anyway, um, the, yeah, they, they they were having a really really hard time, and uh, and it wasn't going well for them uh, personally and and together and all that. Anyway, um, by the time we got to Australia, Michael was actually in a really good place, and and uh, he was staying in Double Bay when I was living in Potts Point, and so I used to pick him up a lot of the mornings from Double Bay, and we'd drive to uh, rehearsals and do the rehearsals and whatever. And anyway, um, that particular day or the night before, I'd gone to a friend's house 
uh, after rehearsals for dinner and we ended up staying the night there and I got back to my apartment uh, the next morning and there was a message from Michael saying, you know, having a bit of a get-together tonight, love you and my then partner Louise to... Uh, to swing on by the, the Ritz-Carlton and Double Bay and, and, you know, look forward to seeing you. So I think we didn't have mobile phones, you know. Well, actually, I probably did, but anyway. Um, so I, I heard that message and thought, oh, that's a bummer. I would love to have caught up with him, you know, socially that night and I went to rehearsal and everyone's gradually arriving and it's kind of sort of a funny vibe going on and with our uh, tour manager and our security guy. And anyway, they, they suddenly said, oh, look, we've got to go to... Um, King, to King's Cross Police Station, um, there was uh, an incident apparently in, in Michael's room last night, so we've just got to go and sort that out. So they left and, uh, and we're all sitting around going, oh, what's, you know, what's Michael done this time and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and Timmy uh, had a little portable TV because he's a cricket tragic and uh, he was watching the cricket that was then broadcast on the ABC back then in, in 96 or whatever it was, 95, 96, uh, 97, yeah. Um, and, uh, and a news flash came on saying, you know, Michael Hutchins found dead in his hotel room. So that's how we found out, just by chance, by having this t- TV on. And we just didn't believe it. Um, started to try and make some phone calls and... Everyone's kind of freaking out. And then our tour manager and the security guy returned and, and confirmed that that had happened. Um, you know, no info, no, didn't really know how or what had happened. Um, and then it just sort of got into this kind of military operation to kind of get us all out of the ABC because here we are in this TV studio that's just re- just reported that Michael Hutchins, you know. So then, you know, they're starting uh, journalists, you know, the ABC journalists are starting to kind of knock on the, there's a little small window into the, into the room, you know. <laughs> knock on the door and like you know what do you want us to do an interview and we've only just found out and we don't even know what happened you know it was just bizarre but we basically all got out of there um and uh and it was advised that we all if we had had the possibility of just get out of town until sort of the dust settles and then we'll kind of come back with a, a plan of how to approach the media and and you know whatever so it was really weird because we all got separated in the most tragic time of our life um you know tragic event of our life um we all got separated and sent off in different directions, which is not how we ever did things, you know. And I think it was just the shock that everyone just went along with with the advice and with with sort of the plan. Um, so I, I, at that time, had a um, a small farm down in Kangaroo Valley. So shot down there, got really drunk that night, and um, and uh, and eventually went to bed. And I had a dream, and Michael. Uh, visited me he was he was an owl as an owl and I was in a in an open paddock um and I mean the owl didn't speak to me like this but um basically Michael said you know I'm fine I'm finally free um and you know don't worry about me and all that sort of stuff you know quite quite sort of simply simple stuff but I woke up and bawled my eyes out and um but then sort of felt yeah I think you know it 
it, to me it felt real. It felt like it was him and he, and he was letting me know that because that, um, he'd been having such a tough time and everything that he was now free and, and was okay. So, so, so that gave you some solace, Kirk? Yeah, it did. It really did, um, believe it or not. And, I mean, I still, you know, you, you still go through all the, the, the emotions of loss, um, you know, grief and anger and as, you know, the weeks progressed and we all went to the, you know, to the funeral and, and, you know, carried the casket out and all that sort of thing. The band carried the casket out with, along with his brother, Rhett. On this sweltering Sydney day, those who knew Michael Hutchins and those who admired him and his music have gathered here at St Andrews Cathedral to say their final farewell. Michael Hutchins was 37 when he died last weekend. Shortly, we'll take you inside the cathedral for the funeral service. It will be led, and by the dean, the Anglican dean of Sydney, the very Reverend Boak Jobbins. Yes, Gary, and the family of Michael Hutchins has been very careful to make sure that this service reflects his all too short a life as one of Australia's most celebrated performers. And, yeah, so, you know, it's it's it was obviously just... A, a, a massive shock I can't put in into words and and I think uh you know but when when sort of uh you know we convened as a band uh and went well sort of what now um you know we we kind of all felt well I guess you know that's it you know uh, the rug's been pulled out from underneath us and um uh we don't we don't have you know Mike the shiny bumper bar up the front of the car anymore and um, what do we do? But so, uh, you know, a series of events occurred over the coming months that, that kind of got it all, it got us back on track again and got us going and as a band and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, it was, it was um, yeah, it was just uh, unbelievable. And, you know, we still don't know what happened. No. Um, that'll never be answered because there was no one in the room and um, so... Don't know. You know, I went through all sorts of theories over the years of what may or may not have happened. You know, was it was it a hit? Uh, you know, or was it an accident? Or was it? You know, who knows? I never know. No. So, do you ever, as I said right at the start, Kirk? I've immersed myself in the last ten days in in excess. I've read. I've listened. <laughs> I, I've watched. Sorry about I, that. No, no, mate. I, it's. <laughs> I, I've enjoyed every moment of it, reconnecting to, like I said, my youth. Do you ever? Do you ever sit down and and listen and watch? Um, no, not really. You know, um, Lane, Lane often has in excess on in the car, and I get in the car and go, oh. "What a wife! What yeah, a what a wife!" wife. What a wife. Yeah, but, um, oh, no, but there's always stuff going on. We've got, we've got a few exciting things coming up, which I can't talk about, um, but, but it, it's involved some things I've needed to watch and listen to uh, and that sort of thing. But I don't, no, I never really sat around listening to In Excess songs, you know, only when I had to kind of relearn them again for a tour or something, you know. Do, do you have uh, a... Yeah, people often say to me about the podcast, you know, which episode should I listen to of the however many? And I say, well, it's like telling you which is my favourite child. I, yeah. I can't do it. But yeah. do you do you have a a song or an album? And I've sort of stated how hard that must be from my experience. Do you have a song or yeah. an album that is that is close to you or represents you or just well, they they yeah bring something extra to you? Yeah, look, I mean, they all do. Um, they all you know represent and mean. Something, but the album I think most of the band would always say was their favourite was uh, an album called Welcome to Wherever You Are, and mm-hmm. that 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 came out uh, that was like our eighth album, 
the one after the X album, which was after the Kick album. Yes. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was, we had decided with that album that anything, could, anyone could in the band could try anything musically, you know, or whatever, like as wacky as whatever. So it was just a really, really free, creative space, um, more so than perhaps, you know, all the other albums that, um, not that, you know, none of them weren't creative. It's just that we we, we followed sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, the songwriter's guide for each song when we're recording or it depended. Every song was different. So, but that album um, is definitely a favourite just because of the, the musicality of it, and um, and I and I think we we kind of chucked the box away because we thought, well, we can't do another Kick or another X album. You know, let's just have sort of a bit of free reign here. And yeah, so that that's probably um, one of the favourites. And then I, and I actually really love um, the album we did uh, that was you know after the uh, the Rockstar and Excess TV show um, with the new singer we found the Canadian JD, JD Fortune yep JD you are right for our band in Excess you are the Rockstar um, that album I really love too. I think it's really special. And it was really different because for the first time we allowed the band members to write with other people, with people outside of the band. All, all the writing had been internal on all the other records. So it was kind of a, a, a really different um, concept for us to, to have co-writes from people outside of the band. And I think that lent for, you know, lent for pushing... Um, pushing uh, our sound in, in sort of new directions that we hadn't explored before. You've been – this is everything I wanted this to be and I, I've <laughs> – no, it is, mate. It's – if um, this this is exactly – this chat is what I, I was hoping to to achieve with what, what I'm trying to do with this artistic side of things because it's, such a, it's a, such a different world to sport. I've only got a couple mm. more questions for you. Uh, for, for the youngsters that are listening – I often frame it in the sport one, but I think with the artists it's more for anybody that's listening that wants to achieve some success in their life. Kurt, yeah. you, were, you were part of a, a super group, tremendously successful in your field. What advice would you give folks that are trying to be successful in their field? Mm. Well, I, I think that, that that's the first thing is identifying what you're passionate about. Um, everyone has talents, you know. Uh, everyone is talented. Everyone is is. Oh God, um, and I think it, it's identifying what you're really passionate about and what you really love. Um, that's that's the most important thing, and then the rest, you know, then you just got to go about doing it, and and you just start at day one, and and start working towards making whatever that goal is you want from it uh, to happen. You know, there's a whole lot. The else yes. goes with it. I mean, you know, as I think you've probably heard Lane talk about it and, and I've, I talk about it too is, you know, having a team of people around you that, that you know, encourage you and don't, as opposed to bringing you down, you know. So choosing, choosing people that will help you achieve that goal, help you achieve what it is, what your dream is, surrounding yourself with those sorts of people um, and, uh, and just going for it, you know. Um, but you have to be passionate about it because if you're not, then it becomes work. You know. What's it like to think back and reminisce from a band that was playing in a garage to being the biggest band in the world? Yeah. Oh, look, 
uh, you know, the, uh, again, I, I find difficult to put something like that into words, but um, um, it's, it's crazy, you know, to, when I think of myself when I was a child and, and you know, and going to school. And I, I think, you know, Tim and I especially always believed it was going to happen, even when we were kids. Where And it wasn't in an arrogant way. I don't know if it was just a knowing or something, but we just, or whether it was talk, trying to talk ourselves into it, I don't know. But we always thought we're going to make it, you know, it's going to happen for us. What that looked like, I wouldn't have had any idea, um, you know, and what it ended up looking like. Uh, you know, was was extraordinary um, that, you know, a bunch of guys from, I mean, I'm looking out in the area I grew up out our window here, you know, a bunch of guys from this area yeah. to achieve what we did is is mind-blowing and astounding. And, and it almost feels like a dream now. Um, you know, it's like another another person, another me uh, in a way because it, it, it's, it's, you know, the brain does funny things over time. And um, I think, uh, but I, you know, am eternally grateful for, for what I have and, and what we achieved. Um, and I know what went into it you know, to, to, to be able to get us to that point. So I don't, don't feel like I'm lucky. I don't feel like, um, no. uh, I, you know, it was certainly wasn't handed to me or to us on a platter uh, by any means. Um, but we did it, you know. So it's, it's an, an incredible feeling and, and you know, I, I, I rest easy at night. Um, maybe it's a bad thing. The other side of it is that, um, you know, I don't really wish for anything. I don't have goals sort of anymore. I think maybe I put so much into that that by the time we decided to kind of, um, you know, stop touring and, and all that, um, that I just sort of slipped into it because it was like um, I can now just sort of relax and have a life and 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 I do and I love it, you know. Um, so, so there's no there's no one last time Johnny Farnham style. No, um, I, I, I don't think there is. You know, where the, the offers come to us all the time. I know that, that there's secretly. Yeah, I know there's a secretly an offer being put together at the moment um, that would be amazing if we were, if we chose to do it. But I I don't think the guys will want to really. I think it's just too much water under the bridge now, yeah. and and to get it all up and running again, it would take you know sort of literally uh, months of of you know um, preparation and money and uh, and time to to get it up and running again. So. Never say no, though. No. <laughs> hey, mate, thanks for joining me on the show. You're a star. Give no my worries. best to your wife. I will. It's been a blast for me. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Thank you. Now that is a life full of experiences to date. Thanks to Kirk for coming on the pod and sharing so many fantastic stories. What a legend. We were very fortunate throughout the episode to be able to use some in excess music. Now, a lot goes into this and it could not have happened without some wonderfully supportive people from various organisations that made all this happen. So to Adam Moore, who really got the ball rolling alongside Karina Masters at Universal Music, thank you. Also, thank you to Selena Muros at Warner Chapel Music, who gave us the sign-off, and Sam at Murphy Petrol Group, alongside Karen Griffin at Identity PR. Without these wonderful people, we would not have been able to play you those in excess tunes. Funny though, how it seems that those that work the hardest in the sporting sphere 
have the most success. And the same applies in the artistic world, as evidenced by in excess. Must be something in that. Thanks for listening. If you could all do me a favour and spread the word about the podcast to help it grow to your entire crew, that'd be great. Don't forget, coming up next week on the Howie Games Artist Series, the great man, Andy Lee. Until then, peace and love. Listener.